when we say God is good, you know, in modern days, the word good is kind of just, I mean, watered down, isn't it? I mean, these days, if you want to say something's really good, you go, man, it's wicked. But wicked isn't good, is it? Wicked is wicked. And good is, an, is a very good word. In fact, good means you can't improve on it. So God is in a state of not being able to be improved upon. He's perfect. And something I want you to know is that when God made you, He said, you were very good. <laughs> In Genesis, he said, and it was very good. After he made man, he said it was very good. So what does that mean? Does it mean that you're better than God? No, that's not what I'm saying. Listen to what I'm saying. I'm saying that God saw you as very good. God saw you as very good. He doesn't see you as very bad. In fact, he paid the highest price to get very bad off of you. Because it was never what you were created to be in the first place. You were never created for very bad. You were created for very good. I'm going to show you. So we all have an old man. We really need to get rid of. Don't drag this old man around with, with us wherever we go. And use the resurrection power that we've been given to raise him up every now and again. It says believers we should raise the dead. And stop talking about your old man. Leave it alone. Go with me please to John 8. There are very few places where one can go and you can learn what the Word says about who you are practically and you can live it up. We're not about event-driven Christianity. Look, if, if you wanted to preach the lies that everyone else wants to believe, you could have a mega church like this. You, all of you sitting here, you are tired of the status quo. I know some of you. And I know that you, you, you just can't go to the status quo anymore. The status quo just doesn't work for you. Why doesn't it work for you? Because you've realized that truth matters. It matters to believe the truth. It matters to understand the right heart, the right perspective. It matters because that's what we stand on. We either stand on truth or we fall. Jesus said, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, he's, he's the man who builds his house on a rock. But if you hear these sayings and you don't do them, guess what? You're the man who builds your house in the sand. If we hear what the Word says, we must put what the Word says into practice. Otherwise, we run the risk of becoming self-deceived, James says. Jesus. Who, who would want to willingly be self-deceived? I know none of you would. No one wants to be self-deceived, but the whole thing with deception is you don't even know that you're deceived. And so when you're self-deceived, it's so bad because you, don't even, you can't even see it. You can't see the wood for the trees. Deception, by the way, doesn't just jump out at you like a, you know, like a big lion out of a bush. It creeps up on you and it mixes a little bit of truth and a little bit of truth. And as you buy into one lie, you buy into the next lie, you buy into the next lie. And before you know it, you're switching from maybe 10% lie and 90% truth to 90% lie and 10% truth. And you don't even know it. So that's the nature of a lie. And what, is, what happens is when a lie begins to dominate, it becomes a reality that people can live in. Let's go to John 8. And let's just read what happens here. Because I want to show you something about the nature of lies. It's very, very important. Trust me, I am talking on the old man. I promise. <laughs> I am on topic. You will see. Okay? Good. They answered him. 
And they're talking to Jesus. Oh, sorry, I'm in verse 39. I didn't tell you where, that, where, where I was reading from. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to him, to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. So hold on. Jesus is saying if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. So Abraham had works. Abraham did something. Abraham acted in accordance with his faith. So it wasn't that Abraham didn't do anything. And clearly what they were doing was different to what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? I mean, this is interesting. Jesus is like, why can't you get what I'm saying? Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. In other words, they don't want to hear it because it's too much for them. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Who is the father of lies? You see, the enemy wants us to believe the lie. Because if we believe his lie, we can bring into this world, the physical world, we can bring in the lie. Because we've been given dominion of this earth. We've been given control by God of this earth. Which means if we believe a lie, we can empower a lie. And we can make a lie more real than the truth. Because it's up to us. So he doesn't have any power of his own. So he needs you to believe him. So that you'll enforce what he wants you to believe. So you'll do the work for you. The power of this lie is so great. That for generations from Adam all the way through to Moses. People believed that they could never get away, that they were trapped. That's how powerful this lie was. That it permanently separated men from God in their view of themselves. And very few people were able to see that God would want relationship with them. We have accounts in the Old Testament of, for example, David. Was David born again? But yet David had a relationship with God. So how does David have a relationship with God, but yet he's not born again? If God is so repulsed by you that he cannot stand you, then how does David have a relationship with God? Why don't we ask these questions? Because we don't like these answers. You see, we think that God can't stand us, and that just because of the blood of Jesus, that's the only reason he can stand us. That's not true. God created you. Very good. And when you were deceived in Adam, because remember, we were all in Adam. When we were deceived in Adam, we were all deceived in Adam. How many of you remember signing the document that said, 
I will be born on this day on planet Earth under sin. Because seriously, who have you decided to be born here? Who have you chose to be born here? No, it was given to you as a gift. And then you might say, but a gift of being born into this place? Well, as long as you believe the lie that this is not a gift, you will live like it's a nightmare. In your, when your dream goes opposite to the way that it's meant to go, it becomes a nightmare. Why? Because you introduce fear. So when you put fear in, guess what happens? A dream becomes a nightmare. So what happened in the beginning was that fear came into the garden. Fear that God was holding out on them. That God wasn't giving them everything that He said He gave them. And because of that fear, the dream, which was supposed to be creation, became a nightmare. And Jesus came to deliver us from that nightmare. I want you to understand this very simply. Because you know what? I can get complicated. And what's the point? Come on. You, you need to understand this. Jesus said that the Pharisees, guys, the Pharisees love God, man. They love God. They wanted to serve Him. They did everything they could to serve Him. Okay, some of them got proud and arrogant. But wouldn't you too, when you're doing everything you can to try and be a holy man? Well, I deserve to be a holy man, and you don't because I do what I need to do. Isn't that right? That's why pride rises up in individuals who become religious, because they are doing all this stuff. They're denying themselves all these things so they deserve the right to be better than you. That's why they get full of pride. Because they think they can earn righteousness. But even the righteousness that we earn isn't good enough. In fact, the very reason that it takes you into pride is the very downfall of it. The very thing that you're hoping to gain, you end up missing because the heart's wrong. Because you're operating from the wrong perspective. So yeah, the Pharisees, God says, this is Jesus speaking, your father is the devil. Man, do you think that, the, that they believed him? Do you think they thought, yeah, you're right, we must be, obviously, clearly, we must be children of the devil. Whatever, Jesus, see you Because, I mean, they were the religious leaders. Right. They were the, the, gui the, the guides, the spiritual guides of the whole of Israel. Oh, we've got it wrong, Jesus. You're some fly-by-night whack job, and you're going to come tell us that we, you know, we're wrong. Uh, have a nice day. You, know, you, don't even, you haven't even studied at my seminary yet. How will, how will you know what I know? I mean, if you went to my cemetery, maybe you'd be as dead as I was. Are you following me? <laughs> the Pharisees believed that they were serving God. They even said so. We have but one Father, God. Jesus said, no, if God was your Father, things would be different. You would love me. Your confession can be one thing and your lifestyle can be something else. And it's important that you believe and say what you believe rather than say something and not believe it. Because if you just say something and you live something completely different, you have a problem. Because your actions will say who you serve. Your actions will speak louder than your words. Now you know in church we have these well, not just in church. I think it's kind of everywhere. We have this problem sometimes with communication. We have a problem communicating with people. We have a, a heartfelt desire to communicate something accurately, but we still end up kind of making a mess of it. Oh, Mark, what are you talking about? That doesn't happen. Well, let me give you some examples. 
Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. Oh, sorry. I mean, or maybe another one. Um, Sunday night's potluck supper. Okay, Sunday night is potluck supper. Prayer and meditation will follow. Uh, yeah, that's a miscommunication. In other words, the two are not necessarily connected, but in, in your mind you can feel that they're connected. Remember in prayer that many who are sick of our church and community. Remember in prayer the many who are sick of our church and community. Next Sunday, a special collection will be taken to defray from the cost of the new carpet. And all those wishing to do something on the new carpet will come forward and do so. Can you see what I'm talking about? Sometimes an idea is not communicated successfully. And so what I'm hoping to do is I'm hoping to communicate successfully to you what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the old man. You see, because a lot of us believe that we struggle with an internal devil. which We have this struggle inside with an old nature that is constantly trying to gain its way back into our lives. A lot of people believe that. Okay, Now, you might not be one of those people, and if you're not, praise God. Hopefully, I'll equip you to be able to teach someone how not to believe that. If you are, hopefully I'll help you to find out the truth about that particular subject. Let's start with Adam. You know, if we, if we don't start with Adam, then we won't know what this old man is like. First thing you've got to understand about Adam is when Adam was created, God said he was very good. Then after that, God okay, made Eve out of Adam. And Adam said she was very good. Then after that, they were on the earth, in the garden, to tend and keep it. Now, God had put Adam in the garden to tend and keep it before he created Eve. But they were in the garden to tend and keep it. So, in this garden that God plants, he gives them the divine example of what he would like the whole planet to look like through their dominion. He wants the whole planet to come to its fullness. And so Adam and Eve are to bring, or Adam and the woman, are to bring the whole garden into its fullness and to extend this garden over the earth. So their mandate is to populate the earth and to bring it to its fullness. Now the garden was a dream. How many of you know that they didn't lack for anything? Were they being tormented by devils? So there, were no, there was no devilish torment going on in the, in the garden. Were, was there sickness and disease in the garden? Was there death on the earth? No, because Romans 5 tells us that through Adam's disobedience, sin, sin came into the world, and through sin, death came into the world. So there was no death prior to Adam's sin. So there was no death. Isn't that interesting? So let's just kind of get a picture of what the Garden of Eden was like. Because I want to draw a parallel. Um, Adam went from the crown of God's glory from the supreme being of all of creation. Because the only thing God ever created in His very own image and likeness and gave dominion of the works of His hands to was man. So, if, if you look at God, the only thing closest to God would be man. So, that's the state that man finds himself in. And then what happens? Well, we 
know this story. I'm sure some of you do. Unless you want me to read it, I can read it again. But what ends up happening is the snake, which is the slice of all the creatures, comes into the garden and starts to speak to Eve and starts to ask her about the trees in the garden and whether they're allowed to eat from all the trees in the garden. And Eve says, no, we're not allowed to eat from this one tree. And then God said, we're, you know, we shouldn't eat from it. And the snake says, well, you know, I think basically God is saying that you shouldn't eat from it because in the day that you eat of it, your eye will be opened and you will know good and evil as God knows good and evil. The Bible says that love covers a multitude of sin. But what does the knowledge of good and evil do? It judges it. It judges it whether it's good or evil. The nature of love supersedes the knowledge of good and evil. Which means when you take a hold of the knowledge of good and evil, you actually come down to the governance of the physical realm, cause and causality, rather than the action, reaction. The knowledge of good and evil. If you do good, what will happen? If you do evil, what will happen? The consequences of every situation. So because of that, that's a lower life. The knowledge of good and evil is a lower life because you're so consumed about how well you're doing compared to others that you're constantly comparing yourself to others and you're constantly lacking because you're constantly trying to find something more so you can be something more because your knowledge of how bad you are and how good someone else is or how bad someone else is and how good you are is constantly driving you. In Romans 2, it says that by passing judgment on another, you pass judgment on yourself. Wow. Isn't that nuts? So the knowledge of good and evil, all it does is causes us to be more aware of our sin, more aware of the things we've done wrong, which means we end up doing more wrong. And you know what really helped with that? Was the law. The law really knew how to feel that. Why? Because even the things you weren't knowledgeable of yet, it helped you gain a knowledge of it. <laughs> It helped you gain a knowledge of the things you weren't even knowledgeable of yet. So this Adam we're talking about, he wasn't operating from the knowledge of good and evil. He wasn't operating from a nature that was um, craving disobedience. In fact, he had the nature of love. And if we know what the nature of love is, the nature of love is not to be disobedient. Love, never, love is never ever disobedient. Otherwise, God would be sinning. In 1 John 4, it says God is love. So, this is important that we understand that God himself could never sin. So, when he created Adam, he created him sin-free. So, God had created Adam equal to himself in the sense that he was just like God. Because it says in, in Genesis 1, 26 through to 28, that God created Adam in his image and likeness, which means that even though I could take a life-size picture of me, and you could see this picture next to me. It would look just like me, but it wouldn't be me. The picture can never replace me, but it can look just like me. Now, if I turned that picture into an exact replica, like a robot of me, it could even walk like me and talk like me and do the things that I would want to do, but it will still not be me. It will only be a replica of me. So, we are the offspring of God. We are. That's who you have to realize you are. When, when people see my son and my daughter, they say, oh, that looks a little bit like your wife, looks a little bit like you. Why? Because there are traits from us that go into them. The image and likeness of us goes into them. So it's very, very important that we understand the way God has seen us from the beginning was that he saw us the way that he sees himself.
Now, our biggest problem is that when sin came, it brought guilt and shame. And we felt like we disappointed God. So when we disappointed God, we dropped our standards down and we separated ourselves from Him. And this continued, this lie continued to perpetuate. God was not separating Himself from us. We separated ourselves from Him. And the more you ended up sinning, the more you walked away from what God had created you to be. And the more you began to act contrary to who you really were. And the more you enforced a lie instead of enforcing the truth. To the point where the lie was all that anyone knew. And because man's spirit had been disconnected from God, he didn't have the power to overcome this drive that he was constantly feeling by his new slave master called sin. So what do we know about Adam is that he was free from this before the fall. But when he chose to disobey God, he fell into himself. And where Adam was previously driven from the Spirit, being mindful of the things of the Spirit, operating from the, the place of the Spirit, he was now operating from the soul that was very much connected to the earth. And so he began to operate from an earthly position rather than from a heavenly position. And this heavenly position that he once held, he lost because of his disobedience. And someone else took it from him. And that one was the accuser. Now, what do we know? The word Satan means accuser. So Satan, the accuser, his job is to accuse you. That's why he's called the accuser. So he hasn't been employed by God to accuse you. He has employed himself. He is very much self-employed and he's very much an opportunist. He's self-employed to accuse you in the area of your conscience, in the area of God. For example, you hear things happen, bad things happen. And the minute you hear that, you'll think, a thought will come into your mind, says, why did God allow that? Why did God allow this? Because ultimately, if you've had that thought, who's accusing God? The devil. The Satan, the accuser, is coming before you and saying, is God really good? So good, isn't he? Is God really good? And so when we believe that, well, we think, well, if, you know, if that's happened, then maybe God isn't good, and well, maybe we need to understand it differently, and then we go and we form theologies to try and support our failure rather than just looking at what his word says. We end up in a place where we have excuses for not living up to what the word has called us to. So this old man falls and is completely depraved of the power to be what God intended man to be from the beginning. And as generations pass and more people are born, the idea or even the will to conquer sin is completely lost. There isn't a reference point. There's no reference point. Look at Enoch, okay? Enoch is the, the seventh born from Adam, and he's mentioned in Hebrews 11 as a man who walked with God and pleased God, and God took him so that he would not see death. And Enoch was taken up into heaven and is still alive today, and it's before the cross. Why? Because he had faith in God. And the Bible says it pleased God. 
That's why we know that faith pleases God, because of what Enoch did. So Enoch was able to find a way to have relationship with God, independent of the fact that he was born a sinner, just like everybody else. But as generations went by, this old man became the only thing we could live by. We became so enslaved to it, so driven by it, that we could not see a way out. There was no way out for us. And what that ended up doing is, it ended up with us sinning sinning more and more and more and more. And God, having to be a just God, having to be a good God, had to now judge the very thing that he loved the most. Imagine if your child was in trial. Your own child was in trial. You know the wrong they've done. You know that they, they are wrong. But you don't want to sentence them to death. Which parents would want to sentence their children to death? No matter how bad they've been. There's always in you a desire for them to come right. For them to repent and, and turn from their ways. How many of you would agree with me? Yeah. No matter how bad they've been, you always have a hope for them. Because love hopes all things. God hopes all things for you. No matter how many times you've failed, no matter how many times you've messed up, God is still hoping for you. But in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God had an accuser to deal with. Someone who kept coming to him and saying, you must judge these people. You must judge them. You must judge them. Your law says this. You must judge them. And so God's had to judge them. That's why often you'll hear when God comes down and he speaks to Abraham before he goes to Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, um, news of Sodom's sin has come to me and I'm going to go check it out, see if it's true. Come on. Why? Because he's been a liar from the beginning. Who's to say he's telling me the truth? Let me go find out. Yeah. Otherwise, God would have just believed him and did it. God said, no, 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 I'm going to go double check this to see if it's really as bad as you say it is. And then only... Does Abraham plea for Lot, and then God still has mercy on Lot and his family. So if God was going to bring punishment on the earth, if the wrath of God was going to come on the earth, the righteous would be saved. And these guys weren't righteous like God's righteousness. They were just after righteousness. Come on, man. God is, he is good. He's only done what he had to do, ever. And the good news is that when he kills this old man, he no longer has to deal with it because the legal requirement against the old man dies with him. Yeah, sure. See, this is where I'm going, okay? It's good. This is what you've got to understand. This old man that has been what was born through sin, that gave birth to a whole nation of sinners, has to be murdered on a cross. In order for that one to die and give birth to a whole nation of righteousness. You are part of that nation. But you can live like you're not. Because you can empower the lie just as much as you can empower the truth. So you you need to hear what I'm saying because freedom, freedom is in your room. It's not It's not knocking at your door. Mm. It's gone past that. The veil has been torn. The the side of Jesus was pierced. And the curtain into the Holy of Holies was opened. I'm passionate about this topic because... Let me me just give you a little bit of insight. For For the life of me, I don't understand why for 20 years of my life I lived in bondage to addiction. 
why it had the right to rule me like a god. Why it had the, the incessant need to tell me what I could and couldn't do and when I should do it. And if you see aggression, it's not with you. Come on. It's with the devil. Yeah. Come on. Because I realized that there was a dog in my house who was acting like my master. I'm the master of the house. God created me to master it. He didn't create it to master me. And I will not be dominated by sin when I'm under grace, empowered by the Spirit of God to live free. Go with me please to Ephesians 4. So I say this, verse 17. So I say this and I insist in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do. In the fertility of their thinking. Don't live as the Gentiles do in the fertility of their thinking. That means in their bad thinking. Don't live like the Gentiles do in their bad thinking. What is it that's bad about their thinking? They think like the devil. No, Mark. What were you talking about? Well, do you remember Peter? Okay, so Peter is with the disciples and Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? And everyone's like, John the Baptist. I don't know how they say that because the guy was still alive. Uh, and Elijah and all that kind of stuff, right? And then Peter pipes up and he says, you're the son of God. And Jesus says, no one could have told you that, but my father in heaven has told you that. Big brownie points for Peter. I mean, he is constantly racing John to see if you can get to the tomb faster when it happens. So what happens? The next chapter, Jesus is saying, the son of man must be handed over to the rulers and must be crucified for the sins of the world. And what does Peter say? No way. I will die before you do that, Jesus. He rebukes him openly in front of all the disciples. The same Peter. And what does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan. Because you do not think upon the things of heaven, but you think like a man. You see, the human carnal way of thinking is a trait that has been passed down from generation to generation that's based on a lie and it's ingrained to us from the moment we're born through our parents as to how to live. And it's human wisdom and it's demonic. You see, when we rely on human wisdom and human wisdom is diametrically opposed or exactly the opposite to God's wisdom, then guess what? You're going to be opposing God when you follow human wisdom. You can't not oppose God. If you follow human wisdom, instead of God's wisdom, you are opposing God's wisdom. God's wisdom and human wisdom do not mix. They're like oil and water. They're like fire and water. The one kills the other. God's wisdom kills fire. In that analogy. So what's important is that we do not live as the Gentiles do in the strange, wonderful, crazy, devilish way that they think. So the way we think has to change. We have to line up with the way that God thinks. We have to change the way we think. They are darkened in their understanding, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Okay? So their hearts are hardened and this is stopping them from being able to receive understanding. Because a hard heart... In a hard heart situation, what you're doing is you're rejecting truth before you receive it. So it comes in, you reject it, and it has no understanding. And that's what the devil tries to do. He tries to get your hard heart, I mean your heart hard, so that you will not 
gain understanding. Because if you can gain understanding, then you're one step away from producing fruit. Because they are callous, they have given themselves over to indecency for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn about Christ like this. If indeed you heard about Him and were taught in Him, just as the truth is in Jesus. So any doctrine that tells you you can continue to live a sinful life is clearly not the one that they taught because this is not what they taught. You were taught with reference to your former way of life to lay aside the old man who is being corrupted in accordance with deceitful desires. So you've you've been told to lay down the old man. To be renewed in the spirit of your mind, which is what I explained just now, and I can go to Romans 12, 1 and 2, and I can explain that even further. You might want to make a note about that if you want to go read it later. Okay? To be renewed in the spirit of the mind, and to put on the new man, the new man. So listen, when you have him, you can put him on. When you don't have him, you can't put him on. I can't wear this shirt unless I have it. So God has already given you Christ, but you must put him on. And to put on the new man who has been created in God's image in righteousness and holiness that comes from truth. So the idea behind this whole thing is that you lay down the old man and pick up the new man. Why? Because through the fall, we were all turned into that old man Adam. And you were all born into him. But it is, but it is time, high time, that you lay him down. He's old already. Pick up the new. The very next verse says this. Therefore, so because of the aforementioned things, therefore, that's what therefore means, because of the previously said things, therefore, having laid aside falsehood. So hold on. Didn't he say lay down the old man? But now he says having laid down falsehood. So the old man is a lie. The old man is, a, is an understanding and a position that God never wanted us to take on in the first place. What it means is that we took a chair that never had our name on it. And God's been trying to get us to get this chair away from us. He says, dump this chair. This chair is not who you are. This is not who you are. This is not who you are. You were never created for this. In fact, your indulgence of this nature, your indulgence of this lie, will only cause one thing in you. Destruction. It will only cause decay. It will only cause death. It will only cause damage. Because you were never created to be there. You're living in a lie. You see, as a man brought into the lie, he began to die. He began to decay, he began to rot, he began, everything got subjected to decay because of the lie. So when we take off the old man, you must lay down falsehood. You must lay down everything that is false. So listen, when you say stuff like this, and I'm, and I'm being as, really I don't want to be mean, so please hear my heart where I'm coming from. When you say Jesus did it, not me, you are lying. Because Jesus is in you. You did it with him. The answer isn't one or the other. The, other the, one, the answer is together. God is not separate from you. 
We, Paul quoted it. He said, whoever is joined to the Lord is one spirit in him. Okay, so if you got married, then you would become one flesh. You get, you get married sometime, you become one flesh, correct? Okay. Now, one flesh, the Bible says, that it's appointed for man to leave his mother and his father and to be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. When we see a couple that are married, we regard them as one, don't we? The law regards them as one. They are treated as one. The same, whatever you are, you both owe. It's, 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 it's one. There's a oneness in that relationship, correct? Okay, so you're one. Then it says, now, this is a mystery. And I'm not talking about marriage. In a message he's saying, but I'm talking about Jesus and the church. Whoa, wait a minute. What are you doing? Then he says, whoever is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So what he's doing is he's taking a direct analogy or an allegory of this joining, this union of a man and a woman. And he's saying that we are as one with God as a bride is one with the husband. So there's a direct correlation. Now, then it says, do not separate what God has put together. And yet, in our minds, we constantly divide ourselves from God. We constantly separate ourselves from God as if God is there and I am here. But God wants us to realize that He's always with us and that we should never make a distinction between where we begin and God ends and God ends and we begin because we're in Him and He's in us and we're in one another and we're one. So it's very important that we don't believe the lie. So when it says put down falsehood, it's saying stop believing the lie. That's what it's saying. Even when he lists these things, watch, he's going to list a whole bunch of stuff. He says, each one of you speaking the truth with your neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on the cause of your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. The one who steals must steal no longer. Rather, he must labor doing good with his own hands so that he may have something to share with the one who has need. So the whole motivation of working and earning is to share with someone who has, who has need. That's Paul's motivation for working. He has no other motivation. He's not trying to build his own kingdom. He's not trying to get the best house and the best car and the, and the best of the best. His motivation in writing this is that if you work, you should work so that you can be a blessing to others. Does God own you? So then everything you do, God owns. And every cent you make, He's making. You see, I just spoke about unification. And I said, we're, uni we're unified, we're one. So when you're healing the sick, it's you and God doing it. And when you're working your job, it's you and God doing it. So what is it that you own? What is it that you earn? You don't. Both of you earn it. It's God's. If it's God's, then it's not yours. And if it's not yours, it's easier to give something that's not yours than it is to give what's yours. Because when you give from what you have, you say, well, you know, I need this. But when you realize that you're in Him, then you have everything you need, you can give like someone who has never given, it's like if you're giving from my wallet, if I gave you my wallet and it had 200 grand in it, and I said, go and give money to Nicole, how much money would you give her? All of it, you give her 200. But if it was your money, how much would you give her? Oh. <laughs> my point is made. So when we understand that our wallets are not ours, but that they're, that they're God's, then we'll be generous, not because of any other reason, but for this one reason, that we know that we're one with Him.
So when I say, when I say this, when I say that we should, this man is working in order to be a blessing, you can see the heart behind it. He's not working to try and build his empire. He's working to be a blessing. Listen, if you work to be a blessing to others, God will build an empire for you. God is in the business of getting behind people who are in the business of getting behind him. The blessings can only overtake you when you stop chasing them. You can never, you can never be overtaken by something you're chasing. If you're chasing something, it will always be away from you because you're chasing it. You need to be busy with something else so it can overtake you. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, then all these things will be added. So our focus has to be the kingdom and his righteousness, and then the blessings of the Lord can overtake us. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You must put away every kind of bitterness, anger, wrath, quarreling and evil, slanderous talk. Instead, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. Okay, quickly jump with me to Colossians 3. I want to show you that this is a common thread. Whenever, whenever the old man is mentioned and the new man is brought in, you will see that very similar language is being used. Colossians 3 verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Yeah, that's good. So keep your mind on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Keep thinking about things above, not things on the earth. In other words, be mindful of the things of heaven, not the things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Have you died? <laughs> Is your life hid with Christ in God? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you too will be revealed in glory with Him. So put to de death whatever is in your nature that belongs to the earth. In other words, whatever habits you have that belong to this earth, end them. Anything that lines up with carnal thinking, stop doing them. Look what he doesn't say. He doesn't say because you're still doing those things that you don't have a new nature. He's not saying you don't have a new nature because you still have these things that are contradicting your new nature. He's saying get your mind in line with your new nature. Yes. Because here's the thing. Every single person who gets an understanding of something must take that understanding and put it into a practice in order for that thing to actually become real. How many of you can drive a car? So when you first learned about a car, did you suddenly know how to drive? Did it just, did it just suddenly click? Or did you have to get into the car, work the pedals, work the steering, do some lessons, and go through the process of actually learning how to use the car? Yeah, that's right. Now how many of you know you could have had as much knowledge about the car as you needed, you could have studied it for years and years and years, but until you actually drove it, it wouldn't have been real to you. Yeah, that's good. Very so this here, what you've got to understand is we've been given a new nature, but we now must apply this new nature so that these habits that are belonging to our old man are put to death. Yeah, that's good. But you can only put it to death once you've understood that this old man is dead and no longer has power over you. 
Because as long as you think it still has power over you, as long as you still think you're the monster, as long as you still think you're the evil, you'll never put it to death because you think you're putting yourself to death. So, yeah, here's the deal. He carries on speaking here, and this is important. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 6. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. You also lived your lives in this way at one time when you used to live among them. But now, put off all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, abusive language for your mouth. Do not lie to one another. You see that? You see what just happened? Do not lie to one another. Once again, he's saying, put off falsehood. This is a different text to what we read. This is Colossians. We read Ephesians just now. And he's saying, now once again, he says, do not lie to one another. Since you have put off the old man. So he's saying, because you've put off the old man, don't lie to one another. What does he mean, don't lie to one another? He's saying, don't bear false witness of who you are to someone. You've put off the old man. If I say to you, I'm a sinner, I'm bearing false witness. I'm not a sinner. I'm a son. If I say to you, I'm a sinner, I'm bearing false witness. I'm lying to you. Because I've not, then I, what I'm saying is I have not put off the old man. The old man is old. It's the sinner. He has been murdered. He has been destroyed. I'm now a new man. So when it says, do not lie to one another, it's saying, stop talking as if you are not a new person. Speak like a new person. Speak about yourself the truth. And let's have a look at some of these qualities that you can pick up on in the old man. The old man is full of anger, rage, malice, slander. Now, where do these things come from? Well, why would you get angry? Well, normally people get angry, and this is what the word angry means. A strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. So you would get hostile, you would get annoyed. Why? Because you don't know who you are yet. Does God get annoyed? Now, there's a difference between unrighteous anger, which is what this is talking about, and righteous anger. Righteous anger is when you have to bring judgment against people, like what God did in the Old Testament. Unrighteous anger is where, for the sake of your own preservation, you are angry with others. So the one is driven by self, and the other one is driven by love. A righteous anger is an anger that you feel when someone else is being mistreated, and you want to help them out of that situation. God got angry at times with people who were abusing other people because they insisted with lining themselves up with the one who was working through them to bring abuse to these other people. So God had to deal with them in righteous anger for the benefit of these other people. So too, in the New Testament, God has now paid for everyone so that he can treat everyone the way he wants to rather than the way he has to. So in the New Testament, God no longer has to treat you like a criminal. He can now treat you like a son. So in the Old Testament, he had to treat you as a criminal. But now he can treat you as a son because of what his son has done. And God's anger is, is kindled because of unrighteousness and people hurting other people. God's trying to prevent that from happening. You'll see that right throughout the Old Testament, you see God constantly bringing righteous acts of judgment and for the sake of bringing the lineage of Jesus out. Because that was God's mission. That was his only mission. You look throughout the whole Old Testament. God's mission was to get Jesus born. And for who? Why did he do that? 
for you. Not for himself. He didn't need to do it. That's why it's called grace. If you could earn it, then he wouldn't have called called it grace. He would have called it a, a repayment for your services rendered. See, what God did was his act of grace by sending his son. If we didn't deserve Jesus, and we didn't deserve the spirit that was poured out consequently because of the sacrifice of Jesus. So that's all part of the gift of righteousness that we receive abundantly through grace. So these things in the old man, they are all, they all anchor in the lie. Do you know that? It's funny. People get angry with others because they believe a lie about themselves. If someone comes and says something to you that's nasty, and it isn't in line with what God says about you, and you believe them, you're getting angry because you believe the lie. When a person goes into rage, it's because they believe the lie that everything is out of control. When a person goes into slander, they believe the lie that they're not important, and so they're trying to make everyone else not important so they can feel more important. Everything is in the lie of who they were never created to be, and it's all anchored on self-preservation. So when you understand what the scripture is saying, in order to put on the new man, and to put off the old man, this first Adam, you must believe the truth. You must anchor yourself in the truth. You must be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You must understand the truth. And listen, renewing your mind is just not, not just taking on information, but it is receiving that information and applying it in your life and choosing to believe it in every situation, regardless of what you're faced with. Because only then are you renewing your mind. The renewed mind doesn't ask, what does the Word of God say about my situation? The renewed mind speaks what the Word of God says because it already knows. It's put the Word in and it already knows in this situation what must come out. It becomes an automatic response. It becomes an automatic response. You see it and you speak it because you're already programmed. That's what comes out of you. So some insight into this lying thing. The imperative command against lying is very strong. Paul said to never lie. The reason giving applies to all the preceding activities. So this is a this is a um, a commentary by a, like you know the, the guys on the net that do the theological studies. This is just a commentary on what they said about it. So what I'm telling you isn't something I just sucked out of my thumb. It's actually something that's clearly there in the original text. Okay? This is I'm not going to Greek and Hebrew this thing. I want to keep it simple for you. The end of the day, these preceding things, these characteristics of the old man are all anchored in a lie of who you were never created to be. And so this is what God wants you to do. He wants you to put this off. Then he says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with a heart of mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If someone happens to have a complaint against anyone else, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also forgive others. Listen, how should we forgive? What is it saying here? How should we forgive? The way that God has forgiven you. Until you believe the truth about how to forgive. Until you believe the truth of how God has forgiven you, you can never forgive others the way He's forgiven you. If you deny the truth of how God has forgiven you, then you will never forgive others the way you should. And listen, whoever doesn't forgive puts themselves in their own prison. The key out of the prison of unforgiveness is the key called forgive. You put yourself in prison when you choose not to forgive. Forgiveness is so undertaught in the church. You know what we do? This is how we teach it. We say, you know what? <coughs> no, it's fair enough. You know, if someone's hurt you, if someone's hurt you, that's fine. 
All you do is you never trust them again. You can forgive them, keep them at a distance, never trust them again because, you know, they might just hurt you again. Well, if God did that to you, you'd never get in his kingdom again. Is that the kind of forgiveness you want? Is that the forgiveness we all want from God? But, you know, if we make a mistake that God's going to just, you know, well, you know, you better earn yourself back in. Because, I mean, you could do it so well the first time. You see this carnal thinking? Yeah. This is carnal thinking. Yeah. It's the devil that thinks this way. The devil wants to accuse. The devil wants to bring up your sin. The devil wants to make you feel bad about who you are. The devil will never say anything good about you because you're the image of God. You remind him of God. He hates you. He's not your playmate. He hates you. He has a big H-A-T-E for you. If he could have killed you, he would have. Which shows you he can't. Which shows you good victory. Well, if God had to go by our record... It's, an, it's a miracle in itself that he still has faith that we will actually keep. Which is why I think he had all these hedges bet on Jesus. You know what will empower you? Is knowing that God is not against you, that is for you. If God was against you, it would be done. You'd be over. The only thing we're still, the reason we're still here is because God isn't against us. Because all the devil needs is an excuse. That's all he needs. He just needs an excuse. So don't give him one with what you say. Most people agree more with him than they do with God. Most people say more than what he says about them than what God says about them. And then they want to throw their arms in the air when everything goes bad. Where is God now? When I've been empowering the devil for years of my life. And God wants to know, okay, well, I didn't do anything of that, of that nature. Well, God, it's your fault. Why are all the bad things happening to me? Why is it always me? It's not always you. It's the devil who wants to kill you. You just gave him tools to do it. Don't agree with him. Lay down the lie. You are not an old man. You are not, listen, you are not an old man. You are not an Adam anymore. Come I don't on. care if you made a mistake yesterday. I don't care if you shot up yesterday. Come on. Today is a day of salvation. Yes. This is the day. Today is a day of freedom. The Bible says God's mercies are new every morning. You know why it says every morning? Because we couldn't see every moment. Because someone will never understand every moment. God doesn't live in our time. His mercies are new all the time. Yeah. You don't have to wait until tomorrow morning before you say sorry. That's it. Before you make your relationship right with God. Sure. You don't have to get hammered by the devil and say, you see, you failed again. You're the biggest load of rubbish. You're just a monster. You're evil. God doesn't love you. You don't have to believe that stuff about what he says who you are. Because he's lying. Come he's on. been alive from the beginning. Come on. He's a father of all lies. And it's true about him what he says about you. He's the one sure. who's cut off. He's the one who's depressed. He's the one who's angry. He's the one who's irritated and annoyed. And he's just wanting to manifest himself through you. Don't let him. Don't let him. Say no. Not happening. You're a cut-off branch. You're withering and dying. Your, your number's up, buddy. And there's one place you belong. Under my feet. Sure. Do you know why? Because I'm seated with Christ. Far above all principalities for above all rulers and darkness of this world. I'm not under it all. I'm above it all in heaven. That's the new man. Created in righteousness and true holiness. I mean, it's not a fake idea of wholeness. True wholeness. Now, I've just got one thing to debunk. I know, I know I've gone a little bit long, but I, I trust that this is liberating you. So what I'm about to show you is going to take you even to the next level of what I'm saying. Because this one thing has been so misunderstood in the body of Christ. We have used it as an excuse to live as sinners rather than to rise up and walk in the victory that God gave us from the beginning. Go with me to Romans 7, please. Verse 4. 
Sorry, let's read from verse 1 because I need the context of it. Sorry. Sorry. <clears throat> or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law? Okay? Who's he talking to? People who know the law. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. And remember, we spoke about the unification. So, in, according to the law, the, the Jewish law, as long as a woman is alive and her husband is alive, they are one. But when they die, they are loosed from that bond. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers. So he's comparing this to something else. He's saying, likewise. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So it doesn't say that the law has died to you. It says you've died to the law. It doesn't say there is no law. It's saying that you are no longer alive to the law. And when it's talking about the law here, it's specifically talking about the legal requirements that you need in order to earn your right standing with God. It's not talking about the rules of the land. It's not talking about the rules at your work. It's not talking about keeping the speed limit. It's talking about the legal requirement that you needed to fulfill in order to gain right standing with God. That's the law it's talking about here. So that you may belong to another. So let me read to the verse 4 again. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died for the law through the body of Christ. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. So you're going to be, you, through death, you're going to die to one and you're going to be raised so that you can be unified with another. In order that we may bear fruit for God. So the whole purpose of this is that we become fruitful for God. Yes? For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. So what aroused our sinful passions? The law. We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Are you reading the same thing in your Bible? But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So can you see he's making this complete correlation between the law and living free from the law, how we've died to the law, but the law is not dead. Can you see that? Okay, so watch. The question arises then. Is what then shall we say? That the law is sin? Because I mean, if the law stirs up sin in you, then it must be the law that's sin. He says, no. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So he's saying it's not the law that is sin, but it's because the law points to sin. If I say, do not murder, then you know that to murder is sin. So the opposite of the law becomes the very thing you focus on. So it's not that the law <coughs> excuse me, is bad, it's that... When you focus on what you shouldn't do, you end up knowing what it is that, well, when you focus on what you shouldn't do, you end up doing it because you get the positive. So then what, now this is very important that we read this next section very, very carefully, okay? I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet. So where is covet? It's in the Ten Commandments, am I correct? I would have not known what it is to covet if the Lord had not said, you shall not covet. What does it mean to covet? It means to desire what someone else has. But sin seizing an opportunity. So what seized the opportunity? Sin. Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment. So the commandment comes and sin tries to use the commandment to seize an opportunity. 
But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So, if you don't know about murder, you probably never even think about murdering someone unless you got to a really bad place. But because the law says you shall not murder, it's something that is always in, in your mind and makes, it makes you aware of it. Just like covetousness, etc., etc. For sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. So it's important for us to know that it was sin that brought death to him. Producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Now, if the law is spiritual, the law is spiritual because it wasn't, God didn't flip a coin up in heaven to make up the rules. The rules are based on who he is. God doesn't murder, God doesn't steal, God doesn't covet. But all the things that God doesn't do, that's the, that's the legal requirement of the law. So the law is not evil, but it's spiritual. And when we try and live up to the law, because we are of the flesh, we end up failing. Now what should he saying here? He's saying, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Are you sold under sin? Are you of the flesh? So then, is this talking about you? So then Paul is not talking about himself here, but he's talking about someone who's living under the law. If you look at what I'm saying here, he's not saying that this is my saved state and my constant struggle. Yeah. What he's saying is, this is who I used to be. That's it. This is how the law used to work. This is how I used to respond. And he's personalizing it because he's talking to those who know the law. Didn't we start off with him, them knowing the law? He says, I speak to those who know the law. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. This is the state of an unsaved, unregenerate person. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Which unsaved person doesn't agree that the law is good? I mean, they all want the legal system to use the law, don't they? We have the Ten Commandments in the courthouse. They all believe in justice. They all know it's good. But none of them want to be judged by it. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Guys, does sin dwell in me? For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Does nothing good dwell in me? That it is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Well, before grace, yes. But grace is the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So as long as sin dwells within you, then you can say this is true about you. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind and with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And watch what he says in the verse 1 Romans and Romans 8. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
So he goes, and listen, your Bible's got chapters and verses and headings, etc. But you've got to understand that they weren't there originally. They were put in there to help you navigate your Bible. So this is one letter, and it continues on, alright? In verse 6, I mean in chapter 6, Paul deals with dying with Christ and being resurrected to Him into a new way of life. And then in chapter 7, he talks about being separated from the woman. Remember that whole thing about your marriage and, and dying? And when you die, you die to the Lord, etc. And then all of a sudden, there's this little portion about not doing the things I want to do and wanting to do the things I don't want to do and this whole jazz. And people go, you see, that's me, that's me, that's me. Well, if that's you, I'm going to pray for you today. You're going to get saved. Because yeah. uh-huh. either you're believing a lie or you are believing you're not born again. Because in chapter 8, it says... There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of sin and death. This body of death. The law of sin and death has been conquered by the law of the spirit of life in Christ. So the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's what's happened. So you can either believe the truth about what the word says. You can believe that you're free. Or you can believe that you've got this internal struggle where the devil's constantly trying to coach you. Now my Bible says in Romans 6.14, it says that sin will no longer have control over you. For you are no longer under the preset requirements to earn your righteousness with God. But you have been given the righteousness of God freely without you deserving it. But in the areas of your life that you are still struggling with sin, you are still not yet convinced that Jesus has already won the victory for you. And you're believing a lie. You see, the victory was won already. What we do with sin is we end up shadow boxing. Instead of considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, you can check it out in Romans chapter 6, it's there. Instead of, sin, instead of settling that sin, I am dead to sin. Sin isn't dead. I am dead to sin. Instead of considering myself dead to sin, but alive to God, I still have my foot here in sin. And the Bible says that whoever you willingly obey, to that one you are willingly assign. So then he says, now do not let, do not let sin rule in your body. Which means you have to let it rule. And either you believe that you're a king, and that you have the right to tell it to stop, Or you believe that you're a victim. And Jesus came to set you free from a victim. To make you a victor. You are a victor in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, there will be trials in this world, but take good heart because I have overcome the world. Romans 7 is not talking about a Christian fighting sin. It's talking about a man sold under sin. A man trapped by the law. You are not that person. Jesus. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus.